Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We pray uh, again that you would meet us here with your spirit to transform us. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and, and, and poured out and, and revealed to us because you love us and you have condescended from on high to reveal yourself to us in your word. And that as we study the law, we see Jesus as king and we are to be ruled by him and governed by him and, um, and conform to his image, representing him in all that we do. And we see this again this morning. We pray that you would make that known to us from the heart level, not just the head, the head level. And, and just that we would um, have hearts that are bent and, and zealous to, to reflect Christ and not ourselves. How do we get there? We have no hope of getting there in and of ourselves, but by your Spirit. So we pray once again for His work in us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying, it's all right. I, I, I felt it. It was a, it was an anointing. All right, it's okay. I, all right, we are again uh, in Leviticus. We're in chapter five, uh, starting in verse fourteen. Our our last offering. This is this is the last offering we'll be going through. It's called uh, the guilt offering. And curiously, just just by way of just nerd knowledge, um, the, the the Hebrew text does not end chapter five, where our English Bibles end chapter five. In the, in the Hebrew text, chapter six one is actually um, five twenty, and then uh, the chapter six begins, and where we have six eight. So this is actually the end of chapter 5 that we're doing in the... Not that it matters, really, because the chapters and the verses, numbers are not inspired. But just, it's curious that the other translations or other, other collections of Scripture um, have what today is part of the same chapter. It's not broken that way. I just want to make, that, make, that aware, make you aware of that. So Leviticus 5, in verse 14... And this is the law. I am in chapter 6. That's not it. Okay. The Lord, verse 14, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, Though he did not know it, 
then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. We really have three, three laws today. Dealing with one offering, the guilt offering. Uh, three sections. There's five, uh, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, which deals with unintentional sins as it relates to holy things. And then the next section is 17 through 19, which deals with unknown sins. And then chapter 6, 1 through 7, deals with deliberate sins. And each of them are addressed with the same type of animal, but there's a distinction. There's a little difference in how, in how it's approached. Um, let's look at the first one, unintentional sins, verses 14 through 16. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses. It ushers in a new section. We've seen this again and again. Uh, it's separate from the previous sin offering that we talked about last time. What is this? Uh, how does he characterize this unintentional sin? How does he characterize it? It's a breach of faith. What does that mean? What does that mean? Going counter to that faith. Counter to that faith. That you claim to hold. What are we talking about in in the context here with with Israel? What's the faith? What's our whole society built around? The laws that God gave to them. Okay, why did He give them to to the people? Why did what, what, what... instituted that? What was the purpose behind that? Why did God give them laws? To make them distinct. distinct, But why? Overarching. The whole thing. There is people there in... There's covenant. The whole thing is a covenant, right? I will be your God. You will be my people. This is what my people look like. Right? There's covenant there. And the thing that they're doing here that he's addressing is they're breaching the covenant through this unintentional sin. I mean, it clearly says it's, it's unintentional. Right? They mean to do it. Oops. 
And yet it's a breach of faith. It's, it's acts unfaithfully or treacherously is the word that, that can, it can also be translated there. And what's it related to? Breach of faith on what kind of things? Holy things. What are holy things? What, in, in the context that we, you know, we spent a lot of time on Tabernacle Temple. We spent some time in Exodus on, on the various codes and laws, and now we're dealing with these offerings, uh, these sacrifices. What are the holy things that, that, you come, that, that you come to think of whenever he's talking here? Was it the cleanliness stuff with the, the sacrifices? Okay, so stuff dealing with the tabernacle would be considered holy. What other things? All the stuff that's inside, the, the furniture, the hardware. What else? I would think so. The, 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 the use of the law could be, could be that. Uh, but he's referring to uh, the, the temple, things in the temple. He's referring to things with the priest. Later on, in Numbers, long time from now, when we get there... Holy is referred to the, the breach of faith in holiness is referred uh, when uh, is brought out. It's brought out whenever they're marrying foreign women. It's pushed out from just tabernacle temple stuff to how they operate their families. What are some examples of things? I'm sorry, it's in Ezra. It's it's dealt with in Numbers too, but in Ezra specifically, it's it's brought out that that's a holy uh, a breach of faith. What are some examples of things regarded as holy in the New Testament? We're going to push this out to our era. What are some things regarded as holy? Marriage. Marriage. Hebrews thirteen four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Yes, exactly. It's holy. And can you breach that faith unintentionally? Can you? Yes. I think you can. I think you can. What are some other things in the New Testament that are holy? Everything synonymous with the temple. Would it be the church? The church. How do husbands love your wives? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's Christ's focus. For his church. What does that bring up about how we engage the church? If Christ's uh, focus and zeal is for a bride that is holy and without blemish, can we breach that faith unintentionally? Yeah? Unholy thoughts. Unholy, yeah. unholy things I mean, in your head. It happens to me, but I've heard of it. It never happens to Tammy. 
<laughs> that goes back to marriage. Um, that's where the breach of faith is. I want to kill him. Um, yeah, absolutely. If Christ is, is, his zeal is for a holy bride without blemish, and if we say we love him, are there things that we do that breach the faith of that as regards to the church? Are they always unintentional? No. Can they be unintentional? Sometimes. What else? What else is holy in New Testament terms? Jesus. Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. But yes, and that and, and he basically covers everything. So, so we're done. See y'all later. Glad you came. Specifically, things within Christ and the church. What are some other things that you can think of that are holy? That the New Testament calls holy. How about this one? Children. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14, if you'd like to check me. I know you're looking at them sometimes. Holy is not the adjective I would use. But New Testament terms, they're holy. We should treat them as holy. And we can unintentionally breach that faith. How we treat children. Our children. Little boy this morning. All right. What is another thing that's holy? What's another thing that's holy? How about communion? When we go to the table, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven? Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It's a guilty, uh, guilty language, guilt offering language. As it relates to the table, we eat and drink in an unworthy manner. The word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Titus 2.5. Uh, calling on uh, the people of God to be self-controlled, pure. Women in particular working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? Why would he say this to women? That the word of God may not be reviled. That you may not incur guilt as it relates to the word of God. And dealing with... Notice that's a practice thing. That's not a doctrine thing. It's a practice thing. How we live, in this case, uh, Paul's dealing with some some of the wives that Titus was shepherding. Uh, How we live brings a reviling on the Word of God, maybe unintentionally sometimes. Well, what's a worshiper to do? They've committed an unintentional sin here with the holy things of God. What do they do here? What does it, what does it bring? What does it say to bring? A ram. What is a ram? Yes, it's a truck. Other than a great marketing logo. It's a sacrifice. It's a, sacrifice. a male. A ram sheep. That's sheep, isn't it? Because male, it would just say male goat, wouldn't it? I think that's ram is sheep. 
I want to draw a theological perspective on sheep and goats from that specific deal. But it's a male member of the flock. Why? Why? Why, why not a female sheep or doe, a deer, female deer? Why? They're valued more. They're valued more because of why? We talked about this you last can, week. You can populate your flocks. It's a lot easier to grow a herd with a male goat among females than it is just all females. Yes. It seems to be more productive. I want to draw that distinction as many times as I can in our culture. I just want to make it known that you need both to do that. Just let, okay. I just feel the need. I don't know. In addition to the ram, what else is this worshiper supposed to give? What else? 20% of what? The value of what? The value of the sacrifice. The ram. They weigh the ram or estimate whatever. Get out the rule and see how tall it is. It's worth this many silver shekels. 20% of that on top. Why? Why do you need another fifth of the value of the ram added to this sacrifice? What does it say? Restitution. Restitution. What is that? To make up for the payment for, to make it right. But it's not in the second one, is it? You're reading ahead. You're anticipating where I'm going. Very good. But in this one, we have the idea of restitution. It's the first time we see this. In, in Leviticus, we've kind of talked about it in Exodus, you know, some of the laws there had, had that idea. But let's, we'll get back to it. Is the restitution referring to the ram or is it referring to something in addition? Because it says he shall also make restitution for what he has done, for what he has done and shall add a fifth to it. It's, it's in addition to the ram, but it's based upon the valuation of the ram. Okay. It's in addition. Uh, a, fifth of a, ram? a fifth of the value of the ram. Okay. Some, so some, okay. yeah, and okay. some. So he's giving the ram, and he's giving money. A fifth of the yes. What do you, okay. Chris? What are you gonna say? Um, it kind of makes it feel like it's like you, you give this, you give this, and you give this on top of this. Mm-hmm. It, to me, it almost sounds like it's showing the ramifications of your sin. Yeah. The ramifications. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. It just oozes. It's just an oozing thing. Yes, it is. It, it impresses. What, what does that do to the guy who's who's sacrificing? What what does that impress upon him or her? Sin's a big deal. And dealing with holy things in an unholy manner is a big deal. I was I, I went through this a few years ago, like going down to the book, and I thought, I mean, this is crazy the detail of the offerings and how it's buried between each sin. Right. And I think that that's the thing that I came away with it was sin is is a big deal and it has to be dealt with in a big way. 
Even if it's unintentional. And who is the sin against? It's against God. This is probably going ahead a little bit, but it also shows how this this how your sin affects the other person. Right. Because you're paying that to make up for how it affected. Because later on down, it's you know when if if you steal from them, you have to replace it and then replace more. It shows that that affected them, and you're trying to. And we'll get there in a minute. You're exactly right. In 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 the camp of the Israelites, it impresses upon them that they were give they were to give due respect to God, their King, and His holy property. That's covenant loyalty that's displayed. I'm going to make it right. I've broken faith with God. I need to make it right. And so it's the ram for atonement, and then a fifth over that as restitution to make it right. Notice it wasn't 50% or another 100%. There are some places where, where they're required to do four times the amount that they've stolen, those kinds of things. But here, with the holy things, does God make it absor- uh, exorbitant? The punishment, fits the, crime. the punishment fits the crime. Yeah. These were God-revealed yeah. punishments, right? Yep. Yep. And he gives it to them in, in the form of case law, so they're, they're dealing with, you know making it case specific as it goes out, but these are general principles of this is what the offering should look like for these types of things. Um, Alright. If they do this, it shows a, a disregard for the covenant. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians three, sixteen and 17. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And he then gives a very no-brainer example of this that the Corinthians apparently ignored, and I hope we're not ignoring. But he goes in chapter 6, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, he's pulling again from that same idea, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You're in covenant relationship with Christ. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Out of Egypt I called you. I redeemed you by name. You were bought with a price. Same kind of idea. So glorify God in your body. Be covenantally faithful, not because it's easy, but because we're in, we are members one of another, and it's covenant faithfulness that He requires. Those yous are plural, by the way. Why is that, you think? Why is that, you think? It's to the whole body, and the church is holy. Your body is holy because it's in faithful covenant to Christ. And breach of that affects everyone. Alright. Our sin is serious and we should be radical in both fleeing from it and repenting of it, including seeking to make it right. Alright. Verse 17 through 19. What do we have here? What kind of 
situation. What does it say? Doing things uh, that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done. Yes. What are they? What are the things that ought not to be done here? What does it say? What's the guy going to the temple with this on his mind? What is he thinking of? He robs somebody? Consequences. What's the sin, though? What does it? What does it say? What does he? Does he know what it is? He doesn't know what it did. But he feels there's something's wrong here. I don't. I can't quite place it. Does that remind you of something we talked about at the very beginning of Leviticus when we first started doing this thing? Do you remember that hymn to the unknown God we read? The sin that I know or do not know, forgive my sin. The goddess I know or do not know. The God I know or do not know. This, my sin I know not. Feeling the weight of it. Right. And that kind of that they feel from the inside that it's there, that, that even though they may not have acted on it. Accountability okay. happens, you know, when when you're a part of a community of faith. Yeah. That maybe they became aware of, oh, that that really is him because you could justify I haven't murdered anybody. I've just thought about it. Right. I haven't, you know, committed adultery. I've just right. thought about it. Right. You know, you you can you can justify things as if, well, I didn't really do that. Here we have a lack of certainty on part of the worshiper. He doesn't know what he did. He just feels some kind of some kind of guilt. But he becomes aware of it. He realizes his guilt. Yeah. Initially, he didn't know it was wrong. He didn't understand it was wrong. He's made aware of it through the community, through how, through hearing a priest give a sermon. Um, Paul says, "I didn't know not to covet until the law said don't covet," and then I just did it all the time. You become aware of what you're doing. Through, through that kind of interaction instruction on the law. His conscience is stricken, and so he brings the guilt offering. What's missing here? You already talked about it. The fifth. There's no compensation for this. Why? Not as big of a deal. Not as big of a deal. There's not, there's not a direct fix. <laughs> Directed at any one person, right? It's not a specific victim. And you were going to say something else. I'm sorry. I just thought I'd jump in there. Okay. It seems to be 
uh, a principle that we see in the New Testament also. Jesus talks about masters beating slaves here, and we'll talk about that some other time. But He says, But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The one who apparently did know not to do it will receive a heavy beating. The idea is that you're more responsible for what you know. Right? And that's, and that's kind of the principle we see here. He didn't know it. He's made aware of it. Ah, his conscience is immediately convicted and he's got to go make it right. Well, he's responsible for what he knew. Right? And, and so you see provision in the law that, that goes to that principle. There's not an additional 20%. The guy, he just didn't know. I was going um, to say that it's, it's a matter of the heart. Like this, the concept of the New Testament where... Things that you do, actions that you do, aren't necessarily good or bad, unless specifically that in Scripture, but it's a matter of the heart. The saying here is if you're doing something that you know is wrong and you do it anyway, mm. there's a fifth added on. Mm. But if you're doing something that you didn't know, both are sin, but like Clint said, it's not as big of a deal because it's a Me. matter of the heart. Right. It's still sin. Yeah, still sin. Yeah. Still sin. One is unintentionally. He knew it was wrong, but did it without thinking about it. That's the idea there. He just... He, impulsive kind of thing. Oh, nuts. I knew that was wrong. I just forgot about it. That's unintentional. That's the first one. The second one is, I didn't know this was wrong. I didn't know that my thinking about this all the time was murder. Right? Okay. I didn't know that thinking about this all the time was adultery. Okay. How many of us can say that, by the way? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. First one builds in uh, a little bit uh, the heat of the moment. Right. You react. You know that that reaction is wrong. That is not in your normal character. Mm-hmm. But you, in a in a lapse, in a breach. Right. In a breach. Yeah. Very good. Yep. That's right. I think I think that's exactly right. There's a there's an issue of I know it's wrong, but in the heat of the moment, I do something stupid. It, I didn't mean to. Just kind of. I didn't. It wasn't premeditated. Right. And then this one is. I didn't know that was wrong. And, and, and notice too, um, the sacrificial system here, the Hebrew sacrificial system makes it mandatory to deal with even suspect sin. David says in Psalm 19.12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. This is where this is going. Uh, this is called the suspended guilt offering in the last days of the second temple. Uh, the second temple. Um, Interestingly enough, in Numbers 15, way down the road, Numbers 15, we'll see that this law was applied to foreigners. Not the band, people who came in from other countries, the foreigners. It was applied to the foreigner and the, and the native, both. What does that tell a guy coming from another country, another culture, into the Hebrew culture about the God of the Hebrews? The God I know or do not know forgive my sin. The goddess I know or do not know, forgive my sin. I, what I've done, I know not. The God of the Hebrews makes provision for that. What does that tell you about Him? He's gracious. He's not out to thump. He's out to repair, to repair the breach of faith. This is what's been done. Let me provide for you a way to deal with that and ease the conscience. Um... Everything is up front on the table and they can make it right with him.
Similarly, in Hebrews 10.12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Christ put everything on the table and dealt with it. There is no guesswork in His grace. Look at chapter 6, 1-7. through seven. We'll go through this fairly quickly. Here again, uh, we have a new section, but it's still considered part of the guilt offering. Uh, this passage concerns attempts to obtain something that belongs to another by deceitful means. This is neither unintentional or unknowing. <laughs> this is very intentional and very deceitful. They're intentional and deliberate actions. What are the offenses described? What, what is he talking about? Theft, robbery. What's robbery? When we say we want to rob somebody, what do, what do we mean? Taking what's seizing it by force, right? Would that be intentional or unintentional? Would that be knowing or unknowing? Very knowing. Uh, seizure of another's property. All right, what, what is another thing? Oppression. Oppression. What the heck is that? Oppression. I feel oppressed. What does that mean? What verse is that? Two, the end of two. Could be hinting uh, at blackmail, holding something over somebody's head. Extortion, maybe? Yeah. There's the idea of withholding what another is entitled to, to which another is entitled. Uh, the example here uh, he gives is, is someone who finds lost property, but keeps it to himself, doesn't disclose that he has lost property, hangs on to it without revealing it. Find 100 bucks and don't tell anybody. You heard the joke about the, the lawyer from Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe? Who, uh, who, who gets a payment in cash from a client. The client owes him $100. The old lady gives him actually $200 or stick to get stuck together the new bills. And so he finds out, oh, she gave me. So the, the ethical dilemma for the, for the partner at Dewey Cheatham and Howe is, do I split the extra 100 with my partner? That's the, the ethical uh, dilemma. That's, that's the idea here. Something is got to you by ill-gotten gain. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? Breach of faith by a trustee. Maybe the trustee has lied about ever receiving the property that he holds. You didn't get that to me. What are you talking about? The cow. <laughs> what cow? <laughs> Burp. <laughs> what the? Can the impression of the neighbor, though, be a broader thing? Because it says, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it. Yeah. I mean, could the impression of the neighbor be... You know, I've got some good. I've got some knowledge on you, or underpaying. Okay, could be, could be all those things. Could be all those things. Again, these are general principles that are worked out in the case law later on. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a broad, it's a broad deal. Okay, and these are all compounded by the fact that he swears falsely about the crime. And there you have it. That's the underscoring that it's deliberate. He swears falsely about it. It's been done. I didn't do that. Who has he breached faith against? Who does it say? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. What does that tell you about how God views our treatment of each other? How we're treating him. They are Christ to me. They are Christ to me. Mm-hmm. Sin against neighbor here. It's not like Jesus is pulling out a whole cloth. Right. Eh, let's make this one a new rule. Uh-uh. No, it's always been the character of God. 
always been his purpose. To, the, the community is very important to him. His people are important to him. How we treat each other is very important to him. You sin against a neighbor, it's a sin against God. The same term here for swearing falsely is used in the third commandment. Using the Lord's name in vain. It's a breach of faith in who he is, who his character, what is his character. What do you see here? There's a very interesting way that this is handled. What's the order of operation on this last one? We talked about restitution in the first one. What's the order of operation here? He restores it in full on the same day. The same day he realizes it, he restores it in full. What does that tell you about the heart of the guy? He restores it in full the day he is convicted of it. What does it tell you about the heart? He wants to make it right. The heart that is repentant and contrite immediately goes to making it right to his neighbor. And God sets it up in this order. Make it right with the neighbor first, then bring the ram. Yeah? So the, the part I'm confused about is this is an intentional sin that he committed against him. And it says um, when he has realized his when he When he's convicted of it. I mean, there's head knowledge. Yeah, that's probably wrong. And then there's, what have I done? That's an emotional response to that, isn't it? I don't think this is a logical thing. I mean, there's logic, obviously, to it. I don't think that these are... I don't think the Israelites are all around here being logicians on, oh, the law is this. There's a call to, from the heart, take this, please. I've offended my brother. So would you say that this... This guy has a regenerated heart. We could say that, yeah. He would almost have to. Your heart, it's a revealing of your heart that is regenerated and won't tolerate sin. Right, right. I mean, what we see later in the prophet says, sacrifices I don't desire, but a broken and contrite heart will please the Lord, right? Those are, it's, it's always about the heart. You were going to say something. I'm sorry, Clint. Well, it, there's a distinction um, in all the words uh, between realizing the guilt. It says, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by all these things, mm-hmm. then he shall restore it. So it's almost like you can realize your guilt but not be willing to restore it. Mm-hmm. So when both of those are true, when you have realized your guilt and when you will... And you will restore it. So the willing res- restoration of making it right, the willingness to make it right, displays the heart. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. You, it's a two-step process. Go to your neighbor first. Did Jesus say something similar, by the way? Just pull it out of the air. Hey, this is a good idea. No. This is built into the character of God that sinning against neighbor, sinning against our brother or sister in Christ is the same as sinning against Christ Himself. Make it right with the neighbor first. Only after restitution is made to the offended party does the offender bring his sacrifice. Through means of restitution, the guilty is acknowledging his guilt and contrition. Now he's in need of divine forgiveness. Incidentally, it springs out because of the culture we live in, do you realize that the restitution is not made to the government or a third party? It's made to the person, right? 
there's no victims fund that the government takes cut out for administrative purposes. It's to the person. You go to them directly. Can you tell them I'm sorry? It doesn't work in the economy of God. You have to go to them directly. Um, making it right with one's neighbor is just as important as making peace with God. Our, our passage today highlights the necessity of proper posture of repentance before God, not only to him, but to those to whom we have offended. This reinforces the idea that we looked at last time, that remorse and contrition and repentance come before genuine forgiveness. God's not going to forgive the heart that just wants to hang on to their sin. He's not going to do it. Do you remember David's judgment with Nathan who came to the came to the king's throne room in front of everybody everybody and talks about the the lamb that the poor man had and rich man takes it and sacrifices it and the rich man had all these sheep but he didn't want to give one of his to some guests and what does David require this rich man? Do you remember? That the that the rich man be killed and it be restored out of the estate. They need to probate the rich man's account to give to the poor man four times what he over a lamb. Thou art the man. He'd already given his sentence. Exodus twenty two provides for restitution of fourfold in relation to livestock, and, and David demanded judgment four times. Do you remember Zacchaeus in Luke nineteen? Remember what he said? He's a wee little man. Little, wee little man was he? Do, do you remember what he said in response to, to what Jesus? I'm to your house today. Immediate repentance. What did he say? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, "Behold, Lord, I, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, not just livestock, I restore it fourfold." There's a generous giving of half his stuff and out of the rest of the half, presumably, he's going to restore fourfold what he's taken. He's a tax collector. There's always some theft built in in that practice. I'm just... How can... Anyway. What you see from Zach... That's a joke. Uh, If there are any Christian tax collectors out there, know that there's repentance in Jesus. All right. From what Zacchaeus says, we can see that he had been guilty of defrauding people, number one. Number two, he was remorseful over his past actions. And number three, he was committed to making restitution. That shows the heart. Right? Jesus' words confirm this. Number one, Zacchaeus was saved that day and his sin was forgiven. Why? His heart was displayed. He wasn't saved by restitution, but the heart was shown by restitution. And two, the evidence of his salvation was both his public confession and his relinquishing of all ill-gotten gains. Zacchaeus repented, and the evidence of it is seen in his immediate desire to make restitution. Immediate desire. Here was a man who was penitent and contrite, and the proof of his repentance was his resolve to atone as much as possible for past sins. What if you can't? What if you can't? Do what you can. Do what you can. 
Is that enough? This is the heart of true repentance and reconciliation. As much as possible is an important part of this. If you can make it right, do so. But there may be some instances where you can't. There's not enough money in the world to repair some damage that we do. A Christian should make some effort at restitution that demonstrates repentance but does not need to remain guilty about his or her inability to make full restitution. Why? This is where the always a good answer in Sunday school comes in. Christ is restitution. Right? He is our restitution. Restitution, like obedience, is a result of our salvation, not the cause of it. Christ has forgiven the believer fully whether or not we have been able to make restitution for past sin. I want to make this very clear, though. That's not an excuse to fail to attempt it. And the level of desire that we have to make things right should be a test in each of our own hearts if we have truly repented. Do I want to make it right? Do I desire to make it right? Is this bothering me so badly that I can't make it right? Thank God for Christ. True repentance goes beyond saying, I'm sorry. It extends to correcting the wrong as much as possible. And I would say that even includes setting things in place not to do it again. Finally, look at the worth of Christ. God makes restitution for us well beyond adding a fifth to the judgment we deserve. What's the value of Jesus? Infinite. It's not limited. He's not limited to 20%. He's infinite in value and worth in making restitution to the Father for our sin and, I would argue, to your brothers and sisters for your sin. How does that work? How do we apply the value of Christ horizontally? I I think I get this way. How do we apply the value of Christ to a brother or sister we've offended that we can't possibly? What do you do? And he says some things, doesn't he? Paul does about seeking to outdo one another and serving one another and loving one another. Not out of a sense of I've got to... I'm not going to be saved unless I serve penance. But there's a, there's a mode of operation, there's a faith that we don't breach because we've been forgiven so much that we should act as those who are not out to get ours but to give ours because it's not ours. We were bought with a prize. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own infinitely valuable Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Infinite worth, infinite value, infinite restitution. Do we have hearts that understand that and act on that? That's the call. That's, that's really the call. That's, that's it. When we repent, is it from the heart? Does it show this desire to make it right as much as we can? I was just going to say, I love the, uh, the analogy over and over again of Christ as the head and the, the, the church as his body. Because, um, I mean, we, we know just from anatomy that our brains give the signals to our body mm-hmm. of what to do. And so when we offend someone else, if Christ is our head, he gives <laughs> the signal, so to speak, to apologize, to do what we can to make it right. Mm-hmm. He gives the other person the signal to forgive mm-hmm. as they have been forgiven. Anyway, it's just... And, and when the body is not working when, right, when it's a misfiring. When we're connected to Christ, <laughs> then there should be right. there should be that fluidity, not that we're perfect, right. but that we are kind of getting our orders from right. the head. Right. Very good. Any other comments? We we I'm I'm breaching faith with Philip now. I keep you here for too long. <laughs> He's repenting for unintentional sin later on. I didn't know I can't say that. No. Alright, let me pray. Father, again, we are so amazed at the graciousness that you display in Levitical law of all places. What a gift to see that your desire is heart transformation, not 20%. God, give us hearts that seek to reconcile with our brother first that seek to um, make things right when we have offended whether knowingly, unknowingly, intentionally unintentionally that we be that we be people about the holiness of the church making her as much as we are able with spot or blemish, starting with our own hearts. Lord, I thank you for those here this morning. I thank you that your word is powerful. I pray that it would be so in each of our hearts. And as we go into the next service, do what only you can do. Refresh us, encourage us, rebuke us, Drive us to Jesus. Drive us to the cross. The answer for all of the heaviness that we feel in our hearts when we come up against the law. Thank you for His grace. Thank you for your love. And thank you for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who resides in us, driving us and testifying to the beauty and excellency of our King Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.